here. So I'd like to welcome our uh, visitors today. This is Scott Bourgeois and Adam Rosenhart. Hi. Uh, they're going to introduce themselves. Yeah, clap for them. They're good. They're good people. Make sure you earn your clap. God, we're doomed. We're so screwed. Yeah. Uh, so I'll get them to introduce themselves, but uh, but Adam works for Calder Bateman as the social media specialist. specialist. Uh, Calder Bateman's a public relations marketing firm here in Edmonton. Scott um, talks on the radio for 6:30 Ched and iNews 880, right? Yeah. And uh, so he is a working journalist. And uh, they went met at the Gateway at the U of A many many years ago. How many? Five. Yeah, five. Five or six. That's like I can't, that. It's actually sure. remarkable how much you know about us. It's quite terrifying. <laughs> You're all over the internet. So. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, and and finally, and now they report record a podcast, a once every two week podcast, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. Called The Unknown Studio. And uh, so they can talk, we're going to talk really briefly before we start recording about what their podcast is, when and why they do it, um, that sort of stuff. And then we're going to have a discussion about what we're, the democratization of media. So we're going to talk about social media. We're going to talk about uh, things like like WikiLeaks and other sort of current uh, topics in um, in communications, and we need audience participation. We need questions from you guys. So what'll happen is if you have a question, just come plunk your, yourself right here, and we'll turn the mic your way. And the whole thing will be better if you ask questions. Please don't feel shy. Um, Adam is wearing a half mustache, so you can't yeah. really take a guy okay, that so seriously I, okay. who's wearing a half can I, mustache. Can I explain? Can I explain you the half can. mustache? Why don't we so, start with that? So of course it was November last month, right? And uh, I was growing a terrible, creepy mustache. And uh, at work, we did this this contest to try and get people to donate more money. For every five dollars you donated to the team, you'd be your name would be entered into a draw, uh, and you could basically control someone's mustache for a day. So my boss won, and uh, someone won his mustache as well. So he's got his left side of his face; his mustache is still there, and on my right side of my face, my mustache is still there. So I have a couple of quiet meetings I'll be canceling later today um, because it's fucking humiliating. Um, but yeah, that's why. I, and Scott looks like this an idiot because it's it was November. And and you're how long are you keeping yours? No, I'm keeping it till the end of the week. Okay. And it's gone. Yeah. I didn't hit my uh, my goal, which uh, would have had me keep my mustache until Christmas. Uh, my fiance is mortified by that possibility. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. It's it's December beard now, so uh, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll be growing a beard, my beard back anyway. So um, so we, what's the unknown studio, and why do you guys do it? I don't that's know. an excellent question. <laughs> we ask ourselves this every day okay. that we're together, and uh, it, it all kind of started in a bar, as where most wonderful things begin. I think um, it was actually at a tweet up. Does everyone know what a tweet up is? Does everyone know what Twitter is? Does everyone think Twitter's dumb? Yes, of course you do, but it's not. And uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But um, so a tweet up is a meetup of people on Twitter in real life. Scott was there. I was there. We hadn't really seen each other in a couple no, of years. I, I think we'd said three words to one another, even when we worked at the game. Yeah, we, we didn't know each other that well. We no. knew of each other. And it was this sort of romantic dance that took place that night. <laughs> I, I told Scott I wanted to do a podcast. And he asked on what? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, I'd like to do one too. And I asked him on what, and he said, I don't know, but I work at a radio station. And the rest is kind of history. Now, we, we decided to focus on Edmonton. Our podcast is largely about what's happening in the city because I don't believe that any mass media in the city is doing it well. The journal borrows too much from The Wire. They fire their journalists because they can't afford to pay them. And it's this vicious cycle of content where people aren't getting the news in their community uh, at a level that they'd want to. So we do what's called hyperlocal. And there are websites out there that are doing it in Edmonton as well. One of the most popular ones 
hugely popular, actually, is the Edmontonian.com. And uh, they're just a website that covers Edmonton. So we, we are actually in an alliance with them. It's called the League of Extraordinary Media. Uh, <laughs> so we've got a few different groups that have created these new media properties that are trying to report on Edmonton. And uh, that's kind of our bent. Perfect. Sounds good to me. Scott, right. I have a question right. for you. Uh, sure. <laughs> why do you do this? You, you have a job at a news outlet. I mean, why, uh, why do this extra thing on top of it? Because I like it. Basically, um, I don't get to talk about what I want on the radio. I get to talk about what, uh, what's news. And what's news is not necessarily what I want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, so this gives me an opportunity to uh, have my own show, basically. And I can talk about whatever I want and not get fired immediately. Can we actually so. swear? Sorry, I should have asked. It's a little late, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. I mean. Um, uh, it's okay. Yeah, so. Walk out now. We actually started out an uncensored, or a censored show. Censored yep. in, the, in the way that I would I still swear, but Scott would beep it out. And then after our first year of doing this, we've been doing this for a year and a half now. It actually got hard censoring him because he is such a foul-mouthed individual. <laughs> and he will swear like a sailor on the show, and I'll have a hard time catching all of them. So it became very inconsistent where half of his swears would be censored, <laughs> yeah. and half of them would just slip through. And people started going, that's just weird. And I went, screw it, and uh, stopped censoring. So officially, now what we do is every time I swear, I donate a dollar to charity. And I think this year it'll be uh, women's shelters because we've got a good relationship with Linda Steele from Global News. And, and, and they'll so. get $20,000 of your hard-earned money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank God we are in revenue office there. I'd be broke. <laughs> uh, more questions before we get started here. We might as well start recording, or we'll never uh, be able to get through it all. Tyler? So the show is like as lively as you guys are right now, or is it like mic on professional? Oh, oh no, no, it's like pretty it's, much this. It's not professional. <laughs> we, we specifically uh, decided right off the bat that we wanted to make it really casual and have a conversation with our guests rather than just grill them on on whatever yeah and i'm usually we'll keep on topic and we'll and we'll ask them questions that are pertinent but then we'll go on tangents adam will talk about star trek it's uh, it, it's gonna happen today too you'll be astonished and sad but it's <laughs> what I love. but they're serious you're selling yourself short there's plenty of serious stuff too, of course right? oh yeah well Just I, with it's this not like, tone. it's not that we don't take ourselves seriously but if you're if you think of a professional journalist like someone on the cbc um recording tape it's not like that at all and we never wanted to be that way no like if i'd just apply for a job at the cbc if i wanted to talk into a microphone that way you know and you not that there's anything wrong with that there's certainly a place for it just not my thing and they would never hire me no that's well, what i was gonna say i swear on air too much yeah and you run out yeah of <laughs> <laughs> that guy looked like an idiot we're not hiring him um and who are some of the people you interview you said hyper local so you guys have interviewed artists journalists what politicians, politicians yeah uh, bloggers, who else? Um, some of the most prominent, I'd say, we, we had Don Iveson on the show. Kim Cruchel. Kim Cruchel was on the show. Um, who else? Uh, Dave Cornway, who's, a, who's also into new media. He's a blogger, a political blogger. We've had him on the show. Um, we're trying to get Stephen Mandel on the show. I, I, I'm fortunate that I know his chief of staff, but she's been ducking my phone call. So I don't think Stephen's ready to talk to us. Um, <laughs> maybe. He's still pissed about that whole expo thing. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, we've had Linda Steele on the show from Global. We've, you know, we try and we try and vary it a lot. And a lot of the kinds of people that we seem to interview are, I would call them, I guess, leaders in the community. They're content creators, or they're they're the people who are planning events and those kinds of things. I mean, those are the those are the interesting folk. Yeah. Is that the criteria? Just an interesting person doing, Generally. doing yeah. something interesting? Uh, yeah, I usually sell the show as uh, we have interesting conversations with interesting people on interesting topics. Okay. 
It's a lot of pressure, folks. You guys need to step up some questions here. So, yeah, uh, uh, yeah let's get started. Why All right, so um, do you want to record? Well, yeah, you run the Here's show. the way it works. So, so we have a very specific intro format, which we will record. Yes. And then we'll introduce Archie mm -hmm. and you guys as a class, I suppose. So, silence. Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. Do you feel like we're being watched? I always feel like we're being watched. Coming to you almost live from Grant McEwen's West Campus, this is The Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. And we are your hosts. And this is kind of an interesting show because we decided to actually take The Unknown Studio on the road uh, at the behest of Archie McLean, the chair of the journalism program at Grant McEwen University, who's with us in the studio today. Hi, guys. Actually, uh, we're with him in his classroom today. So we've got about uh, 20 students in a introduction to mass communications class. Say hello, everybody, really loud. Yeah. Oh, that's going to sound so rad. <laughs> and, They're an attentive uh, audience. Yeah, yeah. And so we, we've spent a, a little bit of time before the show answering their questions about why we do this, and I don't think we've arrived at a realistic answer. We still don't really know. Uh, I still don't know why we do this. We're bored. Who are you? I, I'm not sure. Okay. I've, I haven't known that for a long time. Fair enough. Uh, but we're here to talk about, I guess, the state of journalism, uh, the democratization of media, because... That's where we all work. And so, Archie, what have you been teaching your class this year so far? Well, we've covered a pretty broad range of topics. The one that we covered uh, last class was what, you know, when you're in the academic world, you need to use words like democratization and <laughs> things with shun at the end of them. So this is, we talked about the democratization of media, which means the, you know, taking media has changed, is changing from uh, being in the hands of few. So the few people who own printing presses and radio transmitters and uh, really expensive TV equipment to people, uh, to the ability of guys like yourself to just create a radio show just because you feel like it or a blogger who want, who's fed up with the opinions they read in the journal or the sun or wherever and can start their own uh, opinion pages and newspapers. So we've talked a bit about the consequences of this for media, for students who are just getting into the field and, um, and all kinds of stuff. Now you, you're in kind of an interesting position because you're, you were a working journalist for the Edmonton Journal and you were also a political blogger for them at, um, what was the name of the blog again? Capital Notebook. Capital Notebook. So it was yes. all about provincial politics. I'm still a working journalist, I should point out. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I still work at the Edmonton Journal three days a week, uh, generally Friday, Saturday, Sunday as a weekend editor there. So I still have, I mean, a unique position of having one foot in the working journalism world and another foot in the... Uh, classroom world so does it does it make your brain hurt ever yeah my brain aches <laughs> continuously actually yeah uh, <laughs> I'm actually heavily medicated right now oh I believe you <laughs> you probably shouldn't uh, be admitting that no <laughs> anyway the, the uh, so <laughs> anyway so yeah I have a unique position in that I'm uh, work for mainstream media but also teach here uh, and I also blogged at the journal I was a provincial affairs writer so I worked at the Edmund or at the Alberta legislature and kept a blog uh, and actually podcast for some time as well about provincial pod uh, really? politics really it was called, well, it started uh, at first called Alberta Ledge Out Loud, uh, and uh, eventually we changed the name to Capital Notebook Podcast to match the blog, but we did about 23 episodes and we talked to political people of various kinds, politicians, um, you know, people who follow the news, writers, reporters, you name it. So the role of a journalist has changed in a lot of ways. You, before, 
correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it was about submitting copy, certainly in print journalism. Now it's about knowing how to use tools for podcasting, for doing video. I know that Ryan Jackson at The Journal is doing, like, really phenomenal new media stuff. Um, and I also know that a lot of journalists find this to be extremely unfair, that they should be experts uh, at technology when their primary role is storytelling. If you look at the job postings that come up in journalism these days, they they tend not to be listed as reporter or editor. They'll say multimedia reporter or, um, you know, uh, web thinking producer. They have all these fancy titles for it. <laughs> journalists, it's just the reality that journalists are expected to do more than just write a story. You know, in the old days, you could, you got a press release at 9 a.m., you had a peek at it, you went for coffee, you came back, you looked at the press release again, you made some phone calls, you typed something up, um, made some more phone calls. You know, the reporting went on through the day, but there wasn't this sense of urgency. Uh, the reality now is just that technology and the speed of the way things move is that journalists' lives go a lot more quickly. And so uh, they have to be on Twitter. They have to be uh, possibly keeping a blog. They have to be feeding the web. And whether it's unfair or not, it's just the reality. You know, it's it's it doesn't it doesn't really matter whether it's fair or not. I mean, this is just the speed of the world these days, the speed of communication. So, uh, there, and plus, there's plenty of room for storytelling within those uh, media. It doesn't journalists are still storytellers, even if they do it on Twitter and YouTube as opposed to the next day's paper. You're just doing it in 140 characters or less. Yeah. That's fine. That's a skill. I always tell people who are skeptical of Twitter, like, uh, especially ones who look down on it or sort of thumb their nose at it, like, Margaret Atwood's on Twitter, for God's sakes. Like, it's a, it's a medium that smart people can use to communicate. Just but because so, it's short doesn't mean that so it's So is Snoop Dogg, uh, though, to be fair. That's okay. Snoop, you know, uh, I, if you, I listen to Snoop Dogg and read Margaret Atwood, <laughs> so we're, we're good. At the same time. Sometimes, yeah. Talk about that. Now I know, understand why your brain aches. Um the reason I was touching on the, the sort of unfairness is that um, I've encountered journalists who, who do feel like their role is storytelling, and they, they're married to the past in a lot of ways. They like the notion that a journalist puts on a fedora with a little press card in it and says things like, what a story, and scoop, and, uh, and that that's their job. But now the competition is not just telling the best story, but getting it out first. Where do you think the focus should be? Is it is it in the scoop or is it in telling the best, most complete story possible? I have to use the Weasley answer and say it's both yeah, because you, you know you, <laughs> I have to. The uh, you know it's being fast is important, but being accurate is more important. Mm -hmm. And you know the way stories break on the web now is they're they often hit Twitter first, then they'll hit a website, and then there might be a second web update or a third during the day, and then finally they'll end up in the next day's paper. And just because you had something on Twitter two minutes after it broke doesn't mean that your story in the next day's paper can't kick ass and it can't be a great story, a great version of what happened the previous day. Um, it's just not, it's not mutually exclusive. The speed and the new tools that people are using um, for journalism aren't making journalism worse in a lot of ways I think they're making it better and that's what you know people it, it's easy especially in the industry to get frustrated about the the state of things and especially people who've been at the newspaper or any media outlet for that matter for a long time they look back at the past and they know what it was and and they know that it's never going back that way and that sort of fills them with sadness and I understand that <laughs> but uh, but there's so much good work being done right now good journalism which yeah. includes long narrative stories it includes database journalism it includes blogs it includes podcasts there's so much good stuff out there that I think it's an exciting time for media, not a depressing one. I think he's talking about us. Probably. <laughs> I was. <laughs> a 
couple weeks ago, Scott and I were invited to attend Startup Edmonton's second launch party at Enterprise Square, a sort of coming-out celebration for technology startups in Edmonton. It's a night of music, wine, beer, and of course, software demos from budding entrepreneurs. After weaving through the crowds to take the temperature of the place, which was admittedly very upbeat, we spoke with one of Launch Party's organizers and one of the leaders of Startup Edmonton, Cam Linky. So I'm standing here with Cam Linky, the, well, what do you do for Startup Edmonton, Cam? Uh, I guess I would be the co-founder slash co-chair of, uh, of Startup Edmonton, so I'm one of, the, one of the people behind it. That's right. So this is your second uh, launch party, yep. and, uh, and what happens at these launch parties? What's the, what's the benefit to the tech community? Basically, the whole goal is just to show off some of the really cool companies that we have in town, especially the ones that are launching either their company as a whole, their startup as a whole, or if they're kind of a younger startup launching a new product. Uh, we just really wanted to have a venue in a party atmosphere, just to really, like, this is really cool. Like, these guys are rock stars, and, like, we should have a party showing that off. Um, so we wanted to, we basically created this as kind of a venue for people to do that. So people can drink, they walk around and look at demos, and then uh, what are the, some of the success stories that have come out of uh, Startup Edmonton so far? Well, I think if you look at some, like, for instance, Seek Your Own Proof was... Um, was one of the companies that was our last launch party. Um, Empire Avenue, they actually just, their iPhone app, I think just hit the app store yeah. today, but they've been growing like crazy, just got some investment recently. Um, How many events are you guys looking to do a year of these? Um, usually we run about two launch parties a year. We wanna make sure that, you know, it's actually companies launching and we can, we can kind of put on a good event. Um, other than that, we run a few other ones like Startup Edmonton, uh, our, like Startup Weekend, yeah. um, Demo Camp, um, Founders and Funders, some other events like that, all kind of around you know, promoting and creating a tech community and promoting entrepreneurs here in the city. So can you, do you know when your next event is going to be and, and whether it's going to be a Demo Camp or, or a Startup Weekend? Um, likely we'll have a Demo Camp here in the next month to month and a half. Um, just try to figure out if we're going to do it before or after Christmas. And then we're going to run a startup weekend again and uh, right away pretty quick in the new year, which will be another fantastic time. Yeah. So thank you very much for talking to us and best of luck with Startup Edmonton. Uh, I think it's pretty awesome what you're doing for software geeks in the Edmonton community. Sweet. Thanks, man. Yeah. The Startup Edmonton guys have hosted around 15 startup-centric events here in the Capital Region as they work hard to support the work of Edmonton's burgeoning tech community. Two members of that community, software developer Sean Healy and Trevor Belcher, manager of Original Joe's Varsity, recently teamed up to launch their own software product, a product they call Robot Rhythm. Scott and I caught up with them a part way through the evening. So uh, it's Scott. And uh, Adam. And Adam. Sort of. He's kind of in the background. We're uh, we're both still at uh, at the launch party. I'm also here. Adam might not have mentioned that the first time. I failed to. Because he's a jerk, but I'm here as well. Well, this this maybe this is the first time. Maybe this is the first time anyone's hearing this. I maybe just... we're wasting Sean and Trevor's time. We are here with Trevor Belcher and Sean Healy, and they are two of the people who uh, have uh, a startup that they're showing here at launch party. So, uh, gentlemen, what exactly is it that you are uh, demoing today? Well. It's actually a funny story. It was probably about seven months ago. Yeah. Sean, Sean came in, and uh, I came up to him, exasperated with the music. 
in the place of work. Because Trev's listening to the same songs every hour and a half, every day, and like his hair had all fallen out. <laughs> it's, it's gone. <laughs> I came home and said, I can't take this anymore. It was Prince, uh, Kissed by Prince. I kept hearing that song. I heard it probably five times that day. It's like, I can't take this anymore. And so then we started talking, and we're like, well, why don't we create a system, a music provider, that provides good music, non-repetitive, up-to-date music. Cause yeah. so, so unlike a lot of the competitors who distribute via satellite radio or actually mailing CDs out to stars, we distribute online to little appliances we have in the, in the bars. And so that means when a new song comes out, they have it the, like that day, and they have a massive library that they can schedule and place and just so the, the brand can they can really say what, what, what do we want our musical brand to sound like and they have a massive library of songs to kind of create this with and the music that we want to focus on we want to focus on more deeper cuts of known artists uh, we want to do more independent music and we really want to focus on uh, local music so this is going to be an aspect of the website where local musicians um, are going to be able to submit music and then upon approval, we'll be able to get them into... It goes right into rotation. Right into rotation. Now, have you guys had a lot of interest for this so far? Yeah, actually, uh, the original Joes that I work with, they're very interested in it. And uh, there's also been some other companies that have approached us. So we're just getting... We're uh, dotting all our I's and crossing yeah. all our T's We're just right kind of spinning up our sales cycle. We've had some really fantastic interest. When Joel and I were cruising around Toronto, we would talk to one restaurant owner there, and we're sending him a box in a couple of weeks to try out. And... It's going to be pretty exciting. And what's, yeah, I don't know that we've mentioned the name of what this is. <laughs> it's oh, called it, the Robot Rhythm. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing we didn't mention is we have iPhone, Android, and soon-to-be BlackBerry apps that allow you, if you're in a bar, a restaurant, or store that's powered by Robot Rhythm, you can pull out your phone, see what's playing, see what's upcoming, and like a jukebox, vote for something you want to hear. That sounds awesome. That's an interactive way to uh, better enjoy your time at a restaurant or a shop. Sure is. And the next time I'm at Original Joe's, I'm just going to request a Kiss by Prince. Just about you. Just <laughs> you know what? You. That's not going to be on the playlist, so tough for you. We actually do have systems in place to, so when Adam comes into a place and just wants to annoy everyone, he can only request a song every once every two hours, then it caps out at so many times per day. So you can only rickroll people so many times a day, Adam. <laughs> Damn. And there'll also be, it'll be approved songs, so you won't be able to request Nickelback, because that's probably not going to be on the list, <laughs> or uh, country songs, or, or Adam solo singles. Yeah, those are uh, no, those will be on there. Those will be on. There. How am I supposed to gain traction in the marketplace <laughs> if you guys won't play my music? Well, Scott's paying us to keep you off there. Actually, I knew it. I knew this was a conspiracy. Your voice is mine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for talking with us this uh, evening. I guess. Awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Robot Rhythm is a great example of the cutting-edge thinking, not to mention doing, taking place here in Edmonton. Now, Scott and I spent a few hours at the second launch party, and wouldn't you know it, but we ran into another former guest of the Unknown Studio. Okay. So I just uh, record what, recorded what you just it's, said, actually. Uh, it's Adam uh, what the and, Scott. and Scott coming to you almost live from outside uh, the second launch party of Startup Edmonton. And Still. Wouldn't you know, but we ran into... The internet. Well, who would have figured that he'd be here? I, I would have never predicted, but but Master Mac, Mac Mail is here. Uh, Mac, you're a huge supporter of the software community. Uh, what did you think of some of the demos tonight? Oh, the companies are exciting. They're really cool, I think. Um, I love uh, uh, apps like the Robot Rhythm. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah, because they're just that perfect idea, right? That like, oh, this would be a great idea for a company. And then somebody actually goes and builds it. 
Like it's brilliant, and there's stuff like that that happens in Edmonton all the time that people don't know about. So. It, actually, I would go so far as to say that their idea is ingenious enough that when I heard it, I was like, I can't believe that's not already a thing. Yeah. Because yeah. that is so brilliant. Well, yeah, that's a thing, right? And who knows if they if they have the right support around them, maybe maybe it'll take off, right? Like, well, that's kind of the purpose of events like this. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it's interesting that a lot of these startups, uh, you know, even even companies like uh, Hotmail and Gmail, or sorry, and Google, arise out of the fact that just a couple of dudes had a problem that they figured they could solve with code, and it seems like that's kind of the same thing with the robot rhythm guys and a lot of the other companies here today. Yeah, well, and I think that's the difference between a bubble and something that's going to work, right? Is you've got those problems and you're actually starting from a position of, oh, we need to solve this and how can we use the tools to do it rather than, let's sell pets on the internet or something like that, right? <laughs> they sell pets on the internet? They used to. Oh, damn. <laughs> and then they all died on the internet. I wish I had one of those sock puppets that they sold from pets.com. It's probably worth something now. Um, you've been to a few of these events now. Uh, have you noticed a change in, in quality of presentation or of quality of ideas or products that are coming out, or has it sort of stayed level over the last years? Um, well, I don't, I'm also on the organizing committee for this one, so I don't know if I should comment on the companies. I mean, and we're happy to have all of them, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know, we've done two of these, right? And Well, I, I mean, I, I don't just mean launch parties. I mean, like demo camps. I mean, everything, like yes. Yeah. I mean, this one feels pretty similar to the first launch party to me. Like, there's a really good set of companies. Um, I think it, with demo camp, certainly there's been like a rise in quality. It seems, anyway. Yeah. Um, from what we used to have at the beginning to what we have now, there's you know there's more polish and people are maybe already making some money. They've got some customers or something like that. So it seems like maybe we've scared away the garage tinkers. I don't know. We need to get them back. But well, there's definitely still been a rise in quality. I think they're still around. Guys yeah. like you, always tinkering. Uh, and speaking of which. Do you have any projects on the horizon that you're working on? No, I'm trying to focus on Share Edmonton, my my little side project of choice. Right. So, yeah. And, and what kind of uh, new features can we expect to see from Share Edmonton? Uh, well, the election was a real good time for Share Edmonton. I did some cool stuff, I think, with the uh, with the election. Well, I have to tell you, for the for the election show that we did with uh, Jeff Sampson from the Edmontonian, we used the Share Edmonton uh, election Dashboard. tracker. It was yeah. phenomenal. It was first of all, it was really beautiful to look at. Like you, I don't know, you nailed the design. And it was just simple to use, so really did appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not typically a good designer, so I'm glad that people liked it. <laughs> they seem seem to come together pretty well. But um, uh, starting to integrate other stuff into Share Edmonton. So right now there's there's Twitter updates and events, but more and there's to an extent photos. But going hard on the photos and the videos and blog posts and yeah. aggregating that stuff together, I think is what where I'm interested in going next. And and then hopefully some more around the politics stuff. I think we're at the beginning of three years. It should be easy to track vote, voting, don't you think? Definitely, definitely. But let's see what councillors are voting so that in three years when we go to the polls again, it's like, oh, look, there it is. That'd be great to just hold up a record and be like, actually, this person didn't vote the way they have said they have or something yeah. like that. Yeah, or this person consistently votes yeah. this way, right? If so. you've got a system that holds politicians more accountable, I think you're doing good work. So thank you for that. No, thank you. And thanks for chatting with us this evening. Good luck with all the stuff you're involved in with uh, Startup Edmonton. Cool. Thanks for having me on the show. No worries. Again, <laughs> As always. Again, I love Doug Steve. <laughs> Yay! If there was ever any question about Edmonton's viability as a startup city, I think the team at Startup Edmonton has quashed it. Exciting things are afoot. In fact, just a few days after Launch Party 2, the Startup Edmonton folks launched a new initiative they call the Edmonton Champions Project. On their website, they say, Edmonton needs entrepreneurs, creative entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, tech entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs bring vision, create solutions to problems, and transform new ideas into bold new companies, new approaches, 
in established organizations, new products, and new jobs in every industry, in every sector, profit, and nonprofit. If Edmonton is going to make its mark in this new global economy, the time to act is now. This is why we're asking you as young leaders to stand with us. So for more information about Startup Edmonton and the events they host throughout the year, check out startupedmonton.com. And if you're interested in the Edmonton Champions Project, point your browser at edmontonchampions.com. Are you looking for current, relevant, highly specialized digital media instruction? You need to seek out The Guru. Guru Digital Arts College offers intense six-month programs that simulate real-world projects. You'll work in small classes in a casual professional environment and meet industry pros who offer a mentor-style approach to learning. Some institutions make the same claim, but with Guru, you'll develop the confidence to get out and become a part of the digital media community. Come visit us anytime. Check out a class, talk with our instructors, and be part of the Guru experience. For more information, email info at gurudigitalarts.com or call 1-877-429-4878. So a few years back, um, I started a website with some partners called OilersNation.com. And uh, it sucked at first because it was just us writing. And it was actually us commenting on our own writing. It was a blog. It is a blog. Um, and then we decided, okay, let's, let's, let's turn this into a going concern. So we hired former, well, I, don't, I wouldn't call him former journalist because he would take my head off. But a, a journalist who used to work at a, at a newspaper his name was Robin Brownlee. He actually used to work at the Journal and at the Sun. And one of the things that that has been difficult working with him is that we basically had to drag him kicking and screaming into this brave new world. And it's still a struggle. Like I post his content on our website, even though it uses a very simple content management system that I think anyone should be able to use. And in fact, every other staff member at the, at the website knows how to post their own content. He refuses to learn how. and he has phoned me upset more than a couple of times saying people are talking shit about me on Oilers Nation. They don't agree with me. And I, my response is, well, so what? <laughs> you know, it's a website. This is, what, this is the wonderful thing about the web. No, I, I've been writing sports for 27 years. I've never had anyone respond to me. Is that a huge struggle for many journalists, or is it just that one guy? Like, No, that's a big struggle for all journalists, especially when, I mean, but this is the new reality. Like, people aren't, the traditional model is that media gets pushed out to people. You put out an evening newscast, and it just goes out to people, and you might not hear back. Same with a newspaper article. It's published in the paper, and you, it's just kind of released out there into the ether, and you don't hear a lot back. But people demand now, um, they demand to talk back to people. They want accountability. They want transparency. They want to know why you wrote an article the way you did, and they have a right to know that. But it's not always an easy thing because you discover that not everybody feels the same way about your work. (laughs) Your wonderful story that you crafted all day, someone else thinks is a a pile of crap and they'll tell you as much. But, you know, that's a challenge for journalists. Our, our role now isn't so much just to push information out there, but it's to, to hear back from people and, and have sort of a conversation about what's going on. Now, we've uh, we've discussed this before, and I can't recall with whom exactly. I'll tell you once it, you It may have been Dave Cornier, actually. Okay. Uh, but uh, the kind of... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? The the perception that um, 
transparency is the new objectivity in journalism. And um, Jeff Samsono. Yes, it was Jeff Samsono. And uh, that it's not so much that you need to show both sides of the story so much as you need to be honest about any biases you have. Do you agree that that's kind of the way that uh, journalism is, is moving in, in, the, in the larger media world now? In a word, yes. Um, Jeff and I have talked about this and we agree on some points and not so much on others. I think it's important for journalists to be as upfront as they can about their uh, influences and, and uh, how they arrive at things. The, the, what it gets, where it gets tricky, uh, and, but where it gets tricky for me is situations where, where, okay, how much do I disclose? For example, I was writing about politics for the Edmonton Journal, and I think it's fair for people to, to look what the articles say and to comment on that and ask questions about it. But people will say, I want to know more about who this person is who wrote it. You know, what's their slant? What's their angle? But the question is, okay, what, how much should I disclose? Should I disclose who I voted for? I, I don't actually think that I'm not sure what that would accomplish. Like, how would that help people assess what I'm writing about? Because next election, I might vote for somebody different. And maybe two elections before that, I voted for somebody different. Um, I just wonder how much, or, or say um, say we're writing about um, something to do with religion. Like, is it important for people to know what my religion is? Maybe, but it might also just distract from things. So I'm, I'm OK with transparency to a point. I just sometimes wonder what the appropriate amount is. And it's, I, you know, and also I, I, I don't, that doesn't free the journalist from being free of um, uh, free of influence. Like you can't. We've had we had a situation where a liberal staffer uh, last year was working for Global News and also working for the Liberal Party in Alberta. And uh, for me and other working journalists, we said that's not right. You, you can't hold these dual allegiances like that. And transparency, objectivity, whatever. Like those two things don't match for me. And so, um, so transparency, yes, it's a good thing, but the question is just how much and in what form. <clears throat> I have to admit I'm a bit of a postmodernist when it comes to the notion of objectivity. I don't believe that it exists. I think that where appropriate journalists should strive for balance. And I think that guys like, um, you're probably going to laugh at this, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, because they're so outrageous, it's very clear to most people, except for the Republicans in the United States, um, where they're coming from when they do this sort of reportage that they do. Um, and it's I think it's telling that a lot of people in the US and Canada go to those sources to get their information. Because I think what a lot of us, what I want, what a lot of us maybe want is um, we want that commentary. We want someone to look at um, some of the cables that came out of uh, the WikiLeaks, for example, and say, uh, yeah, okay, this is kind of outrageous, but who cares and what are the implications? I don't, I don't necessarily want just the objective story. I want you to tell me, I want the analysis. And if it's, if it's, uh, if it's given in a humorous way, for me, that works great. Um, but I don't believe, I don't believe in ob objectivity because I don't think it makes, I don't think it's possible, uh, like the true definition of it. And I don't think it makes for great storytelling either. I, that word seems to get people kind of worked up, objectivity. It's like when <laughs> people hear it, they think, what, yeah. uh, you can't be that. And I actually, I kind of agree. I mean, it's, it, it does tend to, it seems like a loaded word for people. You can't be object or completely objective. And that's kind of true. I like, um, I like uh, fairness as a, as yeah, a guiding sure. principle. Um, objectivity is okay to strive for. I mean, I try to be as, as open-minded when I go to things. But fairness sort of acknowledges that every human being has their biases, whether they're conscious or unconscious. Our biases show through on the stories we decide to report. You know, choosing one to put emphasis on as opposed to another. So fairness is one I like. That just means representing all sides of an issue as as fairly as possible. And people understand what fairness is. They don't. It's it, it doesn't raise so many uh, issues. People 
don't always understand what they mean by objective. So a fair journalist can have an opinion uh, as long as they're sort of giving some you know, intellectual weight to both sides of an argument. But uh, what about those times when the other side of the argument is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, insane? <laughs> is it fair to give them their say as well? Is, is, it, is it fair in an argument about the Holocaust to give Holocaust deniers a say? No, and I think that's, I mean, that's the whole point of, of what fairness is. I mean, being fair to an issue is looking at some, something like the science around climate change. Whether or not you believe in climate change or not, uh, the, the truth is that like 99% of scientists believe it's happening and it's human-induced. And so it's not fair to say, to quote these two sides of the issue as if they're balanced. That's not that's not correct. And so journalists have an obligation to wade through these competing claims as best they can. But there are lots of issues, you know, moral issues in particular, that, that there really are equal weight to two sides, or at least maybe to more than two sides. But Do you think that, that journalists um, are overly fair to avoid accusations of non-fairness? Sure, yeah. And generally, that's can be pretty boring news coverage. That's when you get into the so-and-so said, but so-and-so said, but so-and-so said, and you're sort of left with, well, what's the truth in all this? And so, um, yeah, that's boring, and journalists should strive to find whatever the truth is in that. But that's easier said than done, especially with all these other pressures that journalists are under. You know, you don't always have time to check five competing claims that somebody's made in your uh, in your story. You, as best you can, you have an obligation to get it right, but but shades of right. Uh, people don't always have the time to check those things out. That was 50% right. <laughs> exactly. I don't think that's the kind of thing you want to hear, though. But I do think people are looking for more personality in their news, though. They don't, Definitely. I mean, it's not enough just to be a byline at the top of the story. People, at the very least, want to know that you're a human being and that you, you know, you, uh, like, I like to think I'm a pretty fair journalist, but at the same time, and um, I have some personality in the, in the stories that I do. Even though most of my public work is pretty serious stuff, I think anyone who dug very far could learn a little more about me and sort of w mm -hmm. who I am and that sort of thing. I, I think that's actually a great, now is a great time to segue into social media because I, my, one of the things that I enjoy the most about it is the journalists that are using it. Um, and I'm gonna probably harp on the Edmonton Journal because I think they're doing social media very well. Um, and because they sponsor our show. That's true. Uh, what a wonderful media. There you go. Yeah, so journalists. How's that for fairness? And we're revealing our biases and all that good this stuff. This is an important, yeah, important disclosure. We call them ink-stained wretches, though. I don't know if they appreciate that. I don't know if you appreciate that. Art. That's fine. Okay. But a, so a lot of their a little journalists. Little school like that. Yeah. A lot of the journalists that are using Twitter, I think, are doing it well because they do. Um, their personalities do shine through. So that I, I know that Archie covers provincial affairs or covered provincial. I assume you still do. A little bit, yeah. And that, um, and that, you know, like Karen Unlin's the online editor, but she still has a tremendous amount of personality. And I like the fact that I'm close enough to some of these people because of social media to be able to say, hey, that was a great story, or You've, maybe you didn't touch on this angle, or hey, this blogger's talking shit about you. Um, I think so, audience demands it, yeah. I think so, too. And, and so I, I know we asked before we actually started the show, how many of you are using Twitter? A lot of people just sort of scoffed. But could I actually see a show of hands? How many people are on Twitter? Okay, so every, about half the class. Everyone's hands should be up right now. I'm, I, if you're, Especially if, if you're looking to become a journalist. I, absolutely, because it is a great news-gathering tool, and it's a way to form relationships with people in the community that you're covering. Um, and I know it seems dumb, and I know that... It's called Twitter, and that's a problem. And I know that people think that, uh, well, it is, right? I mean, can you take something called Twitter seriously? You tweet on Twitter. You retweet by, that's, that's how you forward someone's message. The language is juvenile, and I think it does a disservice to the platform because what started out as basically a, 
tool to accommodate text messaging onto the web has become a massive, like news gathering, information gathering, uh, content sharing, um, idea generating, crowdsourcing tool that, that every working journalist or everyone who wants to be a working journalist should be using. So that's my lecture for you. Um, get on Twitter. I need more followers. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you have enough. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't have enough. He has more than me, so you can follow me. But, so this is what makes Twitter seem dumb, is that people argue about follow counts and stuff like that, so the number of people who follow you. Um, but it, for me, I, one of the valuable things about Twitter for me has been, one, it's enabled us to find guests for our show. Yep. It's enabled us to promote the show. Yep. Um, and it's enabled us to um, meet these real people in the real world. Like, I spend a lot of time with the folks that I chat with on Twitter, and I would never have been able to meet them under any other circumstances. You wouldn't even know them. No, no. This show would not exist were not for Twitter. So anyway, I that just, might actually be a scathing indictment of Twitter. <clears throat> so we all we had almost half the class or two thirds of the class put their hands up saying they're on Twitter. Okay, um, what about blogs? How many of you write blogs? Yeah, I expected that number to be lower. So about four people. How many of you read blogs? About seven people. <laughs> um, I think we're probably unusual. I go to blogs first for news because they'll take content on the journal and comment on it. So they're providing the service that I'm seeking from journalists anyway. They're doing commentary or analysis. And um, I mean, the fact that newspapers are starting to do blogging well is indicative of where I think journalism is going. And it, 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 it is the democratization of media, because you don't really have an assignment editor for your blog, do you? No, generally the blogs are, are generated by reporters, yeah. And I think, like, Edmonton's uh, civic election, the Edmonton Commons blog that was created at the EdmontonJournal.com that uh, Todd Babiak, Paula Simons, and David Staples contribute to was my go-to uh, for election news. And, and they wrote whatever they wanted. Please. I'm going to cut you off because you just like talking. I love and it. it looked like someone had a question. You did? Come on up, sit in the Come chair. Come on up and ask a question. Right. We need another voice, particularly one that's not a man's voice. Specifically <laughs> one that's not your voice. Thank you. Happy to, happy to oblige. That's cool. And um, so you are? I'm Jenny. Hi, Jenny. What's up? Um, I just wanted to ask, with regards to commentary on news, isn't that kind of, in a sense, if you're always seeking commentary, you prevent from forming your own opinions? Like, we're talking about objectivity and claiming that it's not plausible. Mm -hmm. However, in fairness, in trying to stay, in trying to avoid like bias and opinions, if people are constantly going to John Stewart and, and Colbert and whatnot, aren't we kind of preventing uh, interesting discussions and contrary viewpoints on same topics? Uh, no. <laughs> and here's why. I don't always agree with John Stewart mm -hmm. and I'll I will respect the man for making a joke or a comment, but I think I'm I'm concerned that um, there's an there's a, an over cautiousness among we'll call them conventional journalists I guess, which is kind of pejorative. I don't I don't really like that, but um, I don't think that enough writers respect the audience. I think that too many too often the attitude has been that that the great unwashed masses aren't intelligent enough to be able to filter someone's analysis themselves. And I'm, I mean, I don't know that that's always the case, but I'm worried that that's, that's the thinking that goes into the notion that we shouldn't just be doing analysis. And we shouldn't. I think reporting is important. I think data journalism is really important, and it's become more important. But I don't think that, I don't think commentary 
I don't think it turns us into a brainwashed, brainwashed population. There's also the the fact that uh, if you do have commentary from from I suppose one side, if you want to take a look at uh, at John Stewart and Stephen Colbert as being like the liberal side of things, there's always going to be commentary on the more conservative side of things too. So with um, and Glenn, internet, Glenn Beck should not be represented. <laughs> hold on, side. like are the re- are the Republican commentators as popular? Yes. With I would re- say yes. Probably with Republicans. With Republicans, absolutely. But, okay, I want to talk about outside of America, though. In Canada, who really honestly takes Glenn Beck seriously? Well, well no one takes Glenn Beck seriously, <laughs> but I, I work at a radio station which uh, most, of the, most of the commentary on the air is a little more conservative. And that's, that's perfectly fair. And, and I listen to Rutherford. Uh, and I disagree with virtually everything he says, but I listen to him and it's thought provoking. And I would absolutely say that anybody should, because it gives you the opportunity to hear what the other side is thinking and, and perhaps even respond to it. Having said that though, I think there, the concern that a lot of people are sitting in an echo chamber is legitimate. We saw a lot of this during the municipal election on Twitter. There was a clear, um, um, a clear group in favor of closing the municipal airport, for example, and they were not going to be swayed by any argument. But I still, I mean, and I was in favor of closing it as well, and that's a whole other debate, but I still went to the other side to try and understand where they were coming from. And I felt at times that, you know, maybe maybe closing it wasn't the best decision, but um, after listening to enough of both sides, I I felt like I was able to form an informed opinion about it. And that's actually, the municipal airport's actually interesting because... Um, the, it was brought up in council, you know, should we do something with the airport? I think Tony Katarina brought it up and asked Kim Kershell about it. And at the time she was like, yeah, we should, we should expand it. We should keep it open. And then she went and looked at all the numbers and she was like, no, it is not affordable to keep this thing open. Let's close it. So she originally on the side of, of keeping it open, eventually in favor of closing. Um, what was my point? My point is that there is risk that we get caught up in that echo chamber, but I think I still think we have to err on the side of accepting the fact that the audience is intelligent enough that they're going to seek out those differing opinions. Okay, now okay, I've just got to comment that this uh, this latest uh, election saw some of the lowest voter turnouts. If people are ap- so apathetic that they don't even vote, how many are actually going to go out and seek those opposing opinions? That's a good point. None of them. <laughs> um, I. I I feel like they don't vote um, because they don't have a compelling reason to. So even those, I mean, they might have an opinion, but they're, it's cold outside. They want to sit on their couch. They want to watch Dancing with the Stars, <laughs> which is what came on. So, okay, here's the other problem. <laughs> we did an election night broadcast on the internet with our friends at the Edmontonian.com. And um, we got like I don't know. I think at its highest there were a hundred people watching us. So that's I guess that's pretty phenomenal for a who gives a shit local election. CTV covered the election for one hour before any of the results were even close to being confirmed. Their show ended, and they cut to Dancing with the Stars. That's oh, was, a problem. It was a good program. Okay. That, 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 but <laughs> but I mean that's that doesn't that seem insane to you? Like the the local television station decided, and Global didn't cover it. They did, it, they did some stuff on their evening news. Uh, Access was the only other channel in Edmonton that covered it. So What's it was, that all about? It came to the point where it was us and Access who were covering the election. <laughs> and we did is, a better job. Which is ridiculous. <laughs> it, that should not have been the case. 
No, no, not that I'm biased or anything. So Archie, you had a comment just uh, sure. Well, this is actually just quickly to get back to what we were talking about before this sort of... Uh, <laughs> Thank you. That's Thank okay. you. <laughs> the, the, the other stuff is interesting too. I just, uh, when it comes to the sort of the opinionization of media, you know, more of uh, more opinion in the reporting, it's not so much that I have a problem with that on its face. I just worry kind of long term about, because good reporting costs money. Uh, there's no way around it. I mean, any most journalists will tell you, even ones who agree completely that, you know, with some of the... Uh, new technology and some of the exciting things that's happening will still tell you that in order to do uh, an investigative story or a long narrative story or even a good database um, takes a lot of time and I worry and this is uh, this is actually a separate discussion sort of from the opinion side of things but it just it costs money and uh, it costs time and uh, I worry that as news becomes just commenting on what somebody else did and what somebody else said and you know it ends up um, you get away from what's really important which is new information which is what journalists can actually do is put put new information into a conversation. I think that's more of a comment than a question. So, Well, I've been thinking a lot about this because I think that, so does everyone, okay, you only a few of you read blogs. Does everyone know who Mac Mail is? Probably not. If you go to mastermacmaq.ca, so Mac spelled M-A-Q, uh, this is a, a local dude. He's a software developer by trade, but he's basically turned into a reporter. He covers the stuff that he doesn't feel gets covered very well. I wouldn't call Mac a journalist. He uses data to do reporting and analysis on numbers. He doesn't. He's not telling a story. He's allowing the numbers to tell the story. I still think that's where the value is. I think that, I mean, I listen to the CBC every morning, and I think that the way they tell stories is really good because they provide context. There's sound. You know, you can almost understand what it's like to live in, on, say, a reserve based on the way that they've told a story, um, the sound of people's voices. I, I kind of, I think I understood in some small measure what people in the Maritimes were going through when they had all that flooding and they talked a lot about, or the hurricane that came past Eastern Canada. Um, I think you're right. I think that, I don't think there's, that journalism should be just analysis, just new information and then we just spend a ton of time analyzing that. I think that you're right. I think it's about telling new stories and keeping people informed. But I think there's room for both. And I think what's going to happen over the next few years is you're going to see a lot of reporting, and but a lot of shift towards people craving that analysis. And it's just going to be this pendulum thing that goes back and forth, just like the justice system. And the justice system in Canada is either it's about locking people up or it's about helping them to be reintegrated with society. I think journalism is going to be like that. It's going to swing back and forth between those two things. And technology is going to be enabling that in a lot of ways. And now, Sex Talk brought to you by the Traveling Tickle Truck. Hey, I'm Lauren from the Traveling Tickle Truck. The holiday season is upon us once again. If you're thinking of buying a romantic or naughty gift this year, we'd like to offer you some suggestions of what not to choose. There are some pretty wacky toys out there, and to help you sort it all out, here's the Tickle Trunks list of the top five don'ts for naughty gifts. One, the Vortex. This simple little gadget attaches to your vacuum cleaner hose and turns your vacuum into a powerful vibrator. It's a strange idea, not to mention noisy as hell. But perhaps if you're planning on giving your partner a vacuum cleaner for Christmas, they'll be a little less annoyed if it comes with a vibrator. Two, the Blowguard. This little marvel is designed to make giving a Hummer a song. It's a silicone mouth guard with a vibrator attached at the end. 
This one has to be seen to be believed, so check out our website for the link. If retainers and bike guards turn you on, you'll love this one. Three, the Colt Power Stroker. This one's for the man in your life. It's a rubber masturbation sleeve, and it's shaped like a grenade. It's perfect for the guy who's into warm memorabilia, or not. Four, Volvo Roll-On Fragrance. From the sound of the name, you might think that this is another one of those products designed to make women smell fresh. But no, this is a fragrance that actually smells like vulva. It's meant to be applied to the back of the hand, so people who love the smell of a sweaty crotch can get a whiff anytime they want. Five, Hot Doll. And finally, let's not forget about our furry friends. Hot Doll is a rubber companion for your horny doggy, allowing them to get out their pent-up frustration without the risk of new puppies. To see pictures of these not-so-great gift choices, follow the link on our homepage at www.travelingpickletrunk.com and tune into our next Sex Talk segment to hear our top toy picks for that special someone. It's the League of Extraordinary Media, theedmontonian.com, truebrittle.com, the Unknown Studio, user-created content, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a guarantee of quality Edmonton-based online content. If you're interested in joining or would like more information, visit leagueofextraordinarymedia.com. No rules, no censors. It's Adam Rosenhart, Unleashed. As a self-described Twitter junkie, I think it's fair to say I know a thing or two about this particular piece of social media technology. I understand the conversational aspect of the medium. I get that it's not about acquiring followers, but about having interesting conversations with like-minded people, sharing compelling links, forging bonds with people, and learning new things from a massive online community. A lot of folks I know who use Twitter are like me. You might refer to them as addicts, maybe hashtag Nazis, in a good way, and generally a group of people who don't get too bogged down in the largely irrelevant details of the platform, things like follow counts, Twitter birthdates, and the like. Over the last two years, for as long as I've used Twitter anyway, the system has been subjected to downtime. I've seen the farewell on more than one occasion, even took him out for coffee one day to see what was getting him down. And my Twitter friends are the same. They know the fail whale well enough that they all now call him by his first name, which is Rudiger. Yes, it's true. The fail whale's name is Rudiger von Failington. When the World Cup took place over the summer, Twitter saw plenty of outages as the sheer volume of tweets, shortened links, and twit pics made their rounds, overwhelming Twitter's servers. It's kind of a joke among Twitter users that system failure is a cornerstone of the medium. It's not unlike the weather in Edmonton. If you don't like the weather here, just wait five minutes. If you see the fail whale on Twitter, wait five seconds and hit the refresh button. I think most people understand the glitches Twitter experiences. They've even come to accept them. It's not the end of the world after all. In fact, I liken these glitches to the young social media platform's version of growing pains. You'd think people would be used to it by now. But some people, and you all know exactly who you are, still lose their fucking minds when it comes to a particular Twitter glitch. And it's not as though the glitch is disruptive to people's real-time use of the platform either. I'm talking about that sometimes seen blip where people lose their tweet count. 
Now, the tweet count is merely a number that indicates exactly how many public messages you've sent out on Twitter. And more than follower or following counts, people seem to lose their cool when the tweet count number glitches. It goes to zero or to some number that hardly measures up to the number of comments I've made on Twitter. It's an utterly ridiculous thing to get upset about. Who cares how many times you've posted to Twitter? Is this really what you're going to spend your online time tweeting about? Why don't you complain about Facebook's slippery privacy slope or Foursquare's irritating push-to-Twitter location check-ins or complain about WikiLeaks? Oh, you already are. The thing that really chaps my ass about the tweet count complainers is that it doesn't really matter what that number is. Your tweets are still out there for the internet trolling hordes to read, and since you're so wrapped up in what your count is, I'm fairly certain you've been tracking the exact number even if Twitter hasn't been. So what's the big deal? I'd like for everyone to stop freaking out whenever this happens, because even though visits from uh, the fail whale are less habitual these days, bugs still occur. Find something else to get indignant about, and on the internet, there is plenty. Complain about auto-direct messages or spammy at mentions. But you shouldn't give a shit about your tweet count. Because guess what, sirs and lady sirs? No one else does. So uh, we should take a moment uh, now out of our uh, wonderful discussion yes. to uh, thank our our many myriad sponsors. There are so many. There are so many that they they number in the threes. Indeed. And the first sponsor is, of course, our friends at the, the Edmonton, Edmonton Journal. Journal. That's right. Those ink-stained wretches saw fit to sponsor us when no one else would. And uh, we got a great deal of support from them, both uh, in terms of uh, linking from their website and, uh, you know, drinking beer with some of their journalists and even presenting in front of the classroom of one of their editors. Indeed. So that, that we really thank the Edmonton Journal for that. Uh, we, of course, uh, would be remiss if we did not mention our friends over at Guru Digital Arts College. They are fabulous, aren't they? They are fabulous. They're, they're doing good work. They're teaching students about mass media, particularly digital media, design, um, even how to do podcasting. Indeed. And uh, if you're looking for a change in career, you certainly couldn't do worse. That's true. Then uh, checking out Guru Digital Arts College. Yeah, that's gurudigitalarts.com. And uh, last and certainly not least. Absolutely not. Uh, the Traveling Tickle Trunk. Our, our sex-positive friends on White Avenue uh, have been sponsoring us since June. And in fact, you heard a sex talk segment this episode uh, with Lauren from the tra Traveling Tickle Trunk. So thank you to Brenda, to Lauren, to all the people at the Traveling Tickle Trunk. And you should actually check them out for some good Christmas deals on some fantastic adult toys. <laughs> all right. Your name is? Aaron. Aaron, hi. Hi. Uh <laughs> <laughs> this isn't live, so don't worry about it. Uh, my question was, how concerned are you with the younger generation and viewership? Because nowadays, like, I go through residence every day. Every time I look at a TV channel, it's Dancing with the Stars, American Idol, Biggest Loser. No news channels. As soon as they flip to one of those, they get bored, they switch it. So um, your question is, should there be more pageantry in the news? Yes. <laughs> Dancing with the anchorman, <laughs> I guess. Um, I, think that, uh, I think that the news can be more interesting would be the best uh, answer. I think that it's, uh, in a lot of cases, still very dry. And I think that's partly because there's, there's still the old, um, 
the old view that the news should be serious. And I think that uh, there is room for it to be a little more entertaining. And that's, that's a, almost a, a terrible blasphemous thing to say, especially coming from a journalist. Um, but I mean, that's kind of where our show comes from, is we're trying to be entertaining and informative at the same time. I think this is an informative show. I and I think so. that you're a ridiculous asshole. So yeah. uh, <laughs> it's the mustache. It's the half stash. Um, so uh, my answer would be: I think that it's it's the responsibility. It's not the responsibility of the younger generation or or anybody to be more interested in the news. I think it's more the responsibility of the news to be more interesting for their audience. And I don't know how necessarily that that can happen. I don't have an answer, but uh, but I think that that's. That's part of the case. How many of you watch the local news at least once a day? Okay, how many of you watch at least one reality television show? Seriously, that's it? Be honest, it's okay. I think they're being modest. I think that that's, I find that surprising because I do, I do worry that younger generations aren't as interested, but I mean, people are spending more time in front of all kinds of screens now more than they ever have. And in fact, um, and I think this is a, uh, an artifact of the kind of programming that's out there. More people are watching television now than they ever have. Uh, that was that was in the Economist a few months ago. Um, but I think that I think young people. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm much older than all of you. I think we. Can I say that? You're allowed to. <laughs> I mean, do you consume news just through television or the newspaper anymore? Uh, newspaper, television, internet, most of all, probably. I right. mean, my parents phoning me up telling me what happens. See, word of mouth. I think this is, I don't think that, I mean, I'll go back to Twitter, but that's what it is. It's word of mouth news. It's people, you know, sharing information in an old school way on a new school platform. And, um, I mean, yeah, I guess I worry for some of the stupid people out there who don't inform themselves. And, and I'm, you know, I'm being really trite, but... Um, but I think there are more people out there who are consuming news and trying to inform themselves than we might think. It's not always obvious because they are watching Dancing with the Stars or CSI or something like that. All very valid shows, <laughs> I guess. We, uh, we're running low on time here. Are there any other subjects you guys wanted to cover before we, before we wrap up? Is there anything else we want to talk about? What about you guys? Do you guys have any other questions? You don't have to come up to the front. You can just throw it out there. If, if you, you want, want to we'll just do shell first, then uh, Aaron. Uh, I was just going to ask, back to kind of the democratization of media, do you think that everybody having the ability to produce media now hurts the authority of the traditional news sources? We should repeat that question for the folks at home. We had a question someone was asking if the democratization of the media, the ability of anyone to create media of various kinds, hurts the, uh, did you say, credibility of... Uh, authority. Or authority, excuse me, of, uh, of traditional news organizations. How many people here think they have a really good bullshit detector? Most of you should. You're, you want to be journalists, or, or you're at least interested in communication. I think, that, I think that people in general are pretty good at filtering stuff. I think that I view the Edmonton Journal, for example, differently than I view even the Huffington Post or some kind of mainstream blog, right? I mean, Huffington Post is hugely left-wing and, and very, very steeped in commentary, even though they sometimes break news. But I think, that, um, I think that because we've grown up with the Internet, we're still really good at filtering. And it's easy to tell, from my perspective, some of the biases that exist on different websites and which websites you're going to get that balance from. So it's not something that keeps me up at night, um, 
but I don't know about you, Scott. What do you think about authority? Authorita. Uh, I don't. I don't think that's necessarily the case, and I'd pretty much for the the same reason as Adam. So I'm not just going to repeat everything he just said. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's a matter of you when you have. Uh, an established news organization, it has uh, a certain respectability that comes from its legacy. And when you have bloggers uh, putting up their opinions from home, uh, they're, they're who gives a shit Joe, right? So, ex- yeah. But they can have legacies <clears throat> as well. I mean, look at well, yeah. a website like DaveBerta.ca. Da- again, Dave Cornway, political commentary. But it's it's a matter of you, the, the quality and the, the content you post is what gives you that, uh, what was the word you used, authority? And uh, so Dave has that authority because of the quality and the, and the nature of the content that he posts. And the journal has that authority because of the nature of the, the quality and their history and, and whatnot. So uh, Adam doesn't have that authority because he's a raving lunatic. So, yes. <laughs> um, but I, I also think that there's, I think that we should be careful about just accepting the authority of, of long-standing mainstream communications platforms, sorry, properties. Like, I mean, CNN has become a parody of itself in a lot of ways. Uh, ten years ago, it was a phenomenal network. Now it's almost like The Onion. I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of the content, they like, have you, has anyone ever watched Nancy Grace? What does she talk about? She talks about murdered children and kidnappings. She never uses the word alleged when she's talking about this stuff. Not like any of this stuff has ever gone to court. That's a travesty. But she's on CNN. You know, she's backed by uh, a network that has alleged alleged authority. And, and they're letting her do that. They're letting her violate one of the tenets of journalism, which is one of the tenets of the justice system. You're, you're innocent before proven guilty. So what Adam is saying is that there are exceptions to the rule. And there's no easy answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, that would have been more concise. So my question is coming from way out in left field. It has nothing to do with what we were talking about. Sure. But I'd be really interested to get your opinion on it. Uh, Mandel was pushing hard for the uh, 2017 Expo. Do you feel like the big celebration that went on for the Great Cup in making Churchill Square was kind of uh, trying to push to show that Edmonton can curl kind of like a cool outdoor free activity for public yes in in some way i feel like before you answer we should oh sorry yeah repeat the question so the the question was uh is there the feeling that the the gray cup party that just happened here in edmonton was sort of a um a demonstration of how the city could uh could put on an expo for Expo 2017, especially with a lot of government bigwigs in town? I think it was. I think that after the federal government decided not to help fund the Expo bid, and that's what it was. It wasn't fund the Expo. It was fund the Expo bid. Um, yeah, there's no guarantee we would have even gotten the yeah. Expo. Because we're competing with Kazakhstan yeah. and Liege in Belgium. Um, I think the Grey Cup party was a big fuck you from Stephen Mandel to the federal government, to be honest. And... and, um, and um, I don't think that it'll result in. I think Expo's done. Yeah, I think so too. Except the the yeah, but here is that. Uh, I mean, they planned the Great Cup party for months in advance, years in advance, really. And so, whether we got Expo, if we got the money from the feds for the bid, then it would have been a hey, we can do this sort of thing. But it only became a big fu to the feds because we didn't get it. So I don't think they planned it as a as a to show the world uh, no, th- no. how awesome we are. But uh, well, we are we awesome. Did. I think we proved that. Yeah, no, that was a good party. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, 
we'll take a few more questions and then we have another part of the show that we have to do with you. Yeah, okay. okay. And we have to uh, wrap it up quickly because these folks are supposed to be out of class at 11. So we're going to do these two questions. We'll do Tyler and Kim and then we got to wrap it up. So go ahead, Tyler. Uh, given technology, the use of technology, the way that we get the uh, news now, uh, how long before print journalism is gone? So the question is how long before print journalism is gone? I don't feel like I can predict that. I don't think I can predict that either. I can. It's like months, six, eight months from now. I, <laughs> I remember reading an article. They're like, 10 years. Done. 10 years and it'll be over. So I don't really know. It's hard I to think, say. I think there's always going to be a place for the kind of uh, journalism that you see in print. Whether or not it stays in print is an entirely different matter. And it'll, some will last longer than others. I think it, there's, there's nothing like a... I subscribe to The New Yorker. I love that magazine. And it's like perfect because they're longer articles. You want to read them you know, on a bus or subway or somewhere you'd be undisturbed. That probably has a longer chance of living in print for a long time because it's well-suited to print as opposed to quick-hit news items, which are biologically going to move to the web more quickly, I think. Yeah. Last question. What is our opinion on the latest WikiLeaks dump? Scott? Oh, my God. You had to ask me. Very briefly. Um, I was discussing this yesterday with uh, some coworkers, actually. And the, uh, the general belief is that it's interesting how the, uh, the media seems to have sided with the government on the matter um, over what we should this information should never have been released. Whereas arguably the media's role is to disseminate that very information. Um, at the same time, there's the question of national security. Like where do you draw that line? It's, yeah, calling, it's kind of a gray area. Calling Kim Jong-il a tubby chap, I don't think is a matter <laughs> of national security. And that's fair. I mean, and, and but again, there is there is stuff that was pertinent to national security. So I, I think that John Stewart said it best. It reads like a, like a grade nine student's journal. Doesn't it? About countries. I mean, but I mean, so much of international and foreign relations is about dealing with personalities. And it's, you know, it's interesting that the, um, the king of, I don't know, was it Libya? The guy who has a senior Ukrainian nurse on his staff, a blonde woman that follows. Anyway, Omar I mean, Graf, yeah, it I reads it more like a gossip column than anything else. The, the role of journalists in this case, because they failed to release the information, is to analyze it for us and tell us what's important, I think. Experts in foreign relations, that writing about foreign relations, that's their role now. It's out there. Let's, let's thumb through it and figure out what's important and what we can learn about the United States and other nations. That's important and relevant. Yeah, I find it's hard for me to advocate. I mean, it's hard for me to advocate. As a journalist, it seems like our first impulse should be to get information out there. If we're on the, if we're on the fence about something, I, I would rather err on the side of publishing. I think it's our duty is to get information out to the public. And so it's hard as a journalist to be like, oh, they, they shouldn't have touched this. You know, there's lots of, of that information that uh, if it had been leaked straight to the New York Times, they would have published it because their job is to collect new information and put it out there. But case by case, there are probably some documents in there that are damaging to national security, Canadian and American. And, you know, I, I think you have to analyze each one. Calling Kim Jong-il a tubby chap is fine. I have no problem with that being out there. Uh, there probably are some other documents in there that aren't so trivial. And this is where things get a little more sticky. Uh, I think it's, I think WikiLeaks is great, but I do have some concerns about um, their so what seems to me to be a somewhat blasé attitude about throwing this information out there, you know, if people are being put in danger, they have some responsibility to, to, um, for the information they put out there. Agreed. Um, but I don't think that we should take the line that 
uh, I think there was a high-ranking government official in the United States who said that Julian Assange should be assassinated. I That's mean, a little if, if you do that, it doesn't stop WikiLeaks from doing what it's doing. And it's, that is patently irresponsible because now some lunatic's going to be like, yeah, you should. I'm going to Switzerland. You know, and it's, I mean, not, it's not journalists' uh, obligation to protect governments from embarrassment. You know, it's their obligation to protect themselves from embarrassment. Uh, just because it made some people in the State Department look bad isn't a reason enough to yeah. withhold this information. So, uh, yeah, there's been some pretty extreme reaction to it. I think it's worth a discussion, though. I'm not saying everything they put out there is, is um, untouchable, but, uh, but I think... I'd rather err on the side of getting information to the public than, Agreed. than the other way around. Yeah. So we've come to the end of our show and the end of your class. And very quickly, we're going to do my favorite part of the show. The Fast 15. So this is a segment of the show where we ask every guest 15 questions. The first uh, 13 are standard questions that we ask of all our guests, and then we throw a few wild card questions in there. It's just to learn a little bit more about Professor McLean. Thank you. Okay, so, I'm ready. the Fast 15 with Archie McLean. Number one, your favorite food? Uh, pizza. Number two, your favorite color? Why is this hard? Uh, how about, uh, <laughs> I seem to wear a lot of gray. How about gray? How boring is that? Gray is not a color. Um, <laughs> Mac, Mac, PC, Mac, or Linux, Mac. Mac, Mac. Mac, Mac. Do dogs or cats? Dogs. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Your favorite holiday? Christmas. Favorite sport? Ah, I'm, I'm flinching here. How about, uh, how about basketball? I like basketball. Oh, Wanted wow. to be a contrarian. A couple of groans from the audience I like there. hockey, too, football. I'm going basketball. All right, your favorite... Skiing, actually. That's what... Sorry. Okay, uh, Whatever. Sure. I was thinking organized sports. We're going to go skiing. <laughs> Change my mind. He's not a team player. No, no. I'm too much of an individualist these days. <laughs> your favorite pastime? Favorite pastime? Uh, 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 cycling. Your favorite music right now? Right now. Snoop Dogg. Uh, <laughs> definitely Snoop Dogg. Uh, I'm going to say what's been in heavy rotation lately, um, the Wiggles. Oh. I have a two-year-old, so uh, we listen to the Wiggles quite a bit. We listen to some Raffi. Uh, those would have to be my... Classics. Favorite. Classics, really? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. I wish um, I could say something differently, but if I was ever cool, I, I'm not at all even anymore. Like, and that's, yeah, that's okay. direct consequence of having a toddler in the house. There's some legitimacy to being not cool yeah. and admitting I'm it. not at all. Uh, your favorite movie at this particular time? Favorite movie? I don't watch movies anymore. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this isn't movie, a movie. Isn't uh, Boardwalk Empire on HBO. It's okay. not a movie. It's a TV show, but sure. it's beautiful, and I've been watching it a lot lately. All right. Your favorite video game? Uh, lately, lately, it's been NBA Jam. Oh, wow. He really is a fan of basketball. That's so weird. Uh, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Uh... <laughs> Someone just said objectivity. Objectivity, for sure. Is that uh, actually a superpower? I'd like to fly. I think that sounds okay. cool. Uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Fuck that. <laughs> hey, now we're on to our wild card okay, questions. Okay, I'm ready. What's your favorite part about teaching? Uh, the students. I really like uh, dealing with students. He had to say that. But it's true. I mean, a lot of my job is administrative, you know, sending emails, replying to emails, uh, signing documents, this kind of thing, which mm -hmm. isn't so much my favorite part. It's, it's dealing with students. And your last question, what are you most worried about for the profession of journalism in the future? Uh, 
that nobody's going to pay it, uh, pay, pay, that there will not be resources and funds available to do the important work that journalists do on a regular basis, particularly investigative work and long narrative work, that there will be no business model to support what I think is a very, very important job that journalists do. That is an excellent answer. The best one we've heard all day. Yes. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank it was you. great to have you on the show. Thank you both all for of coming. you. Yeah. Clap. Yeah. All right. Huzzah. Huzzah. Well done. Thanks, and, guys. Uh, and this show will be on our website sometime later today. Theunknownstudio.ca. Unknownstudio.ca. It's also on iTunes. If you go to the iTunes store and search for The Unknown Studio, you will find it there. Uh, thanks again, guys, for coming. Uh, before you guys run away, just very quick announcements. Uh, You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, episode 38. Our guest, Archie McLean, pre-production by Adam Rosenhart, post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. Any questions before we get started here? So if you have a bad question, you can add to that, right? Yes, but we won't because we're dicks. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, we, we I totally can vote for I mean, this. It's true. If there's <laughs> <laughs> That's why you invited us.